Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today on this Monday morning. How was your weekend, Brianna? It was good. It feels, it, I feel so good and so refreshed and rejuvenated after the weekend that it feels like a Thursday. Oh, how about that? Yeah. I actually did too. I went home to Michigan, visited my mother, my brother, my grandmother, saw my nieces, and it was just a fun time, you know, away from the city. It's so quiet there, <laughs> so peaceful in the pivotal swing state of Michigan, where I'm totally yeah. taking the temperature of everyone around me to try to figure out what's going to happen. And? Um, you know, you just get the sense that Biden is so unpopular and it's going to be so hard for him. But also, if the nominee were anyone but Trump on the Republican side, it would be a landslide. And instead, it's going to be close. Yeah, that feels right. And it's looking increasingly like Donald Trump is, in fact, going to be the nominee, as expected, former uh, President Donald Trump walloped Nikki Haley in the South Carolina primary, beating the state's former governor by 20 percentage points with 59 percent of the total vote, making the Palmetto State the third state in a row in which Trump has trounced Haley on the ballot. Haley signaled earlier last week that regardless of the primary results, she would be staying in the race. Here's Haley making her case from the South Carolina stage on primary night. This has never been about me or my political future. We need to beat Joe Biden in November. I don't believe Donald Trump can beat Joe Biden. Now, all eyes are now turning to Super Tuesday on March 5th, where 17 states and U.S. territories will cast their ballots in the presidential contest. Meanwhile, breaking news just this morning, Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel stepping down from her role as of March 8th. In a statement, McDaniel said, quote, I have decided to step aside at our spring training on March 8th in Houston to allow our nominee to select a chair of their choosing. The RNC has historically undergone this change once we have a nominee, and it has always been my intention to honor that tradition. Mm. So this was a move that's been expected for some time. Uh, Ronna McDaniel, a very unpopular figure, I would say, frankly, among certainly among the Republican base, a lot of conservative media, and also among some other Republican leaders. No one can quite point me to what she has actually done wrong over the years. She has staunchly backed Trump, defended Trump, stood by his side, even to the extent that she changed her name. She, right. she was a Romney, and he didn't like that. But, um, but you know, nevertheless, it is true that, uh, that you know, once there's a, a new nominee, there's, all, there's often a... a change in the party. They mm -hmm. find a new chair. Now, of course, we're not going to have a, a new nominee. We're having the same nominee is what it looks like, unless, you know, some Nikki Haley miracle takes place. Again, that is not looking likely. Now, we described her as getting walloped. She did okay. Yeah. Now, it, it was her home state, so you were... She was perhaps hoping for some surprise win, even though the polls did not indicate that was going to be possible. But, uh, you know, she's, she's not... She's not a non-entity in these contests. She is a... She is showing that there is a, not a majority, but a healthy portion of the Republican uh, electorate that is still trying to find some Trump alternative. It's not going to be enough to matter, but it's also non-existent. It's yeah. also not non-existent. I mean, right? look, compared, especially when you look at, at the other races, primaries that we've seen so far, getting over 39% of the vote, I understand caveated it's your home state yeah. and that's kind of embarrassing. But knowing that there is, you know, a substantial chunk over a third 
almost half of Republicans in a state that are clearly looking for a non-Trump alternative, I do think is a sign of something. However, it does seem like her donors are feeling a little differently about it. Um, one of the big stories out in the post-primary um, uh, uh, news ecosystem is that some of her donors seem to be falling back. The billionaire-backed Coke network um, is, is withdrawing yeah. their support of her. It's seemingly indicating a lack of confidence that this is going to go much farther than it has. What do you make of the timing of that, given that this, in some ways, is the most impressive showing that she's had so far? I mean, I was frankly surprised that they had decided to fund her in the first place. You know, disclosure, I am also employed at a magazine called Reason, which has received money from the Cokes in the past. David Koch, one of the <laughs> Koch brothers who's passed away since then, did sit on our board um, a while ago. So my, my you know, if that <laughs> it, it influences your opinion of my views, take it with a grain of salt, although I do also know a lot of people who work in the Coke network and I'm very familiar with how they make their, uh, their how their thinking works. So I'm sure they saw in her a candidate who aligns with their, um, their you know, free market views, free market vision, um, which is a, a, a libertarian one on, on just on economics. But, if, but she's also, you know, as we've talked numerous times on foreign policy, she is one of the more interventionist candidates the most interventionist candidate, frankly, of all. And, and the Koch network has historic, like, continues to this day to support a lot of um, anti-war, anti-interventionist, anti-sanction efforts, um, all that kind of stuff. So I always thought she was a really weird fit. Very good, very solid from the Koch standpoint on, like, these things, but very much not on these. So it was always, it was kind of odd to me that they decided she was worth it when it didn't seem like it was going to matter Ultimate. Maybe if you really thought she was going to be the nominee, you want to, you know, plan a marker on this person to be your person to exert some influence over them later, even though they have some differences from you on opinion, maybe to motivate them to change their mind about those issues. But, you know, it was never more than like a small chance she was somehow going to be the nominee. So here we are. Yeah, well, that seems to be the rationale that is being articulated uh, by the Koch Foundation. They said, quote, given the challenges in the primary states ahead, we don't believe any outside group can make a material difference to widen no. her path to victory. Um, and that seems yeah. right. But the argument that Nikki Haley has been making, and I, I want to get your read on, on something that she said to this end in the clip that we played, uh, is that Trump might not end up being president for reasons outside of what the voters choose in yeah. primary state to primary state, whether or not one of these legal cases um, catches up to him. And then she specifically said in the clip that we played, I don't think Biden can, uh, I, I don't think that Trump can beat Biden. Yeah. Making an electability argument. That, is that going to be effective? Her version of that argument is wrong. That is mm. not true. Trump can beat Biden. Mm -hmm. If the election were held today, I think he would beat Biden. Mm. Um, he beat Hillary Clinton. He lost um, to Biden last time. He could absolutely beat Biden again. And there are some reasons to think that he will beat Biden again. Now, if she wants to say, I am more likely, mm -hmm. much more likely to beat Joe Biden, there she's on perfectly solid ground, looking at all the data, the analytics we have, the polling shows her, like, utterly crushing Biden. Um, and I think even fair commentators on the other side know that's the case, that B Biden would be going down to a historic defeat if the candidate was not Donald Trump. But the candidate is Donald Trump. That doesn't mean Donald Trump can't win or won't win, yeah. but it's going to be a harder fight. It's going to be a harder fight. He, it, Donald Trump, I think, we forget about this, but energizes Democrats in a way that no other person on the Republican side does. Yeah. He ener obviously he energizes Republicans to some degree, but Republicans are pr pretty enthused to beat Joe Biden, I think, at this point anyway. Right. He make, you know, he whips the, the, the 
progressive, liberal, media, Democrat people, your, your vote blue no matter who types, into, you know, fascism is at the gates, democracy is at stake, we hate this guy, we must do, you know, he propels yeah. all those fundraising emails. That's a, that's a negative that Trump exerts over the process that I think would just, would, would be true to some extent, but not nearly the same extent if it were Nikki Haley or anyone else. Absolutely. Well, we have another story. Meanwhile, a new report in The Atlantic actually looks at the question of whether Democrats would actually stop Donald Trump from becoming president if the Supreme Court doesn't beat them to it. Per the article, it's very interesting. In interviews, senior House Democrats would not commit to certifying a Trump win, saying they would do so only if the Supreme Court affirms his eligibility. However, during oral arguments, liberal and conservative justice alike seemed inclined to dodge that question of whether Trump is eligible altogether, throw the decision to Congress, a move which Representative Adam Schiff says could be a disaster. Quote, we don't need another January 6th. So this article was very interesting. Because mm. they, they have it's the Atlantic getting interviews from Jamie Raskin and Adam Schiff and a few other Democrats saying that, um, I mean, they're all taking the, the position that Donald Trump should be ineligible to be president based on his behavior last time, and that they they want, they expect, I don't know if they actually expect, they're saying they expect the Supreme Court to rule him ineligible, because that's their view of the situation. Um, I think here in reality land, we don't actually expect the Supreme Court to do that, and in fact, the Supreme Court might, might not rule on whether he's eligible at all, they'll just say it was not handled properly by the lower court, and it's, you know, he should appear on the ballot, but we're not taking a position on whether he's eligible or not. In that situation, do Democrats <laughs> refuse to certify the election because you know, they all, they all voted and are still in Congress uh, when they tried to um, remove him from office that he, he violated and should, you know, should not be president for all those reasons. Yeah. So, and that would be, you know, that would be <laughs> them doing their own January 6th yeah, on it, some level. It would not be good. Yeah, if Democrats genuinely believe that that is the path they want to go down, they should be very hopeful that the Supreme Court takes this up because they don't want it to be a person-by-person -person decision that's being made by individual Democrats in various districts across the country as opposed to, I mean, this is, this is exactly the kind of constitutional question that should be taken up by the Supreme Court. I don't think it's going to, I agree with you, I don't think it will come out in favor of the Democrats, though. So um, while this might be a, a stunt in some parts of the country that makes a given representative look like they are standing up for democracy. I do think it's it's broadly destructive because again, this isn't one of these issues where uh, Donald Trump is under 35 or it's something from yeah. the clear reading of the constitution, whether or not he's eligible. This is a really difficult, sincerely difficult question as to whether or not the conduct on, October, uh, on January 6th constitutes a kind of um, Right. disqualifying insurrection event. Right. And ultimately, the people should decide, unless it was so clear that, well, yes, he wasn't born in the country, he's under 35, whatever. Yeah. Just like, you know, as Democrats and others, as many conservatives correctly argued, Mike Pence can't unilaterally decide this election was invalid and we're kicking it to the House. He Like, he cannot do that. I, I think it would be, it would, it would cause a lot of harm to the country's yeah social fabric to have um, a mass decertification effort undertaken by either party. Yeah, either way, democracy is on the ballot. Stick around, we're rising for you coming up next. <laughs>
NBC News seems to think that new revelations about an indicted FBI informant have retroactively justified their treatment of the Hunter Biden laptop story, which was widely suppressed by the media after numerous intelligence officials said that it resembled Russian misinformation. Let's see if we can follow their logic. The indicted FBI informant is Alexander Smirnov, who allegedly hid his close connections to Russian intelligence and lied about Hunter and Joe Biden's business dealings in Ukraine. Smirnov told the FBI in June of 2020 that executives at Ukrainian energy firm Burisma had previously paid Hunter and Joe Biden nearly $5 million each. Smirnov claimed that one executive justified the payments to have Hunter Biden, quote, protect us through his dad from all kinds of problems. Prosecutors are saying that Smirnov only did routine business dealings with the company in 2017 and made the bribery allegations after he, quote, expressed bias against President Biden while Biden was running for president. Now, Democrats quickly called for Republicans to drop impeachment proceedings against President Biden, with Congressman Jamie Raskin saying that the investigation was, quote, over. Take a look. And I wanted to just start by restating the obvious, which is that the impeachment investigation... Um, essentially ended yesterday in substance, if not in form, with the explosive revelation that Mr. Smirnoff's uh, allegations about Ukrainian Burisma payments to Joe Biden were uh, concocted uh, along with Russian intelligence agents. And it appears like the whole thing is not only obviously false and fraudulent, but a product of Russian disinformation and propaganda. Republicans tried to tamp down on concerns that this was a death blow to their investigation during a recent interview on Newsmax. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer claimed, quote, at the end of the day, he wasn't an important part of the investigation because I didn't even know who he was. All I knew was there was a 1023 form that alleged bribery. My investigations about all the money the Bidens have taken from China, from Romania, from Kazakhstan. This guy had absolutely nothing to do with it. We got a tip. We investigated it. We couldn't figure out who it was. Comer later released a statement saying the investigation would, in fact, continue. Now, as Robbie mentioned earlier, the group of U.S. intelligence officials who claimed that Russian misinformation was behind the Hunter laptop story have taken a victory lap. NBC News ran an article titled, Former U.S. Spies Warned in 2020 That the Hunter Biden Scandal Had Russian Fingerprints. They feel vindicated now that claim the materials in the laptop, quote, fueled stories consistent with Russian efforts to accuse Biden of corruption that persist to this day, and that were, therefore were justified in sounding the alarm. So this is an interesting bit of, I think, rewriting history here, frankly, that the NBC News article was doing. They seem to be saying, look, we, we found someone who made an allegedly false tip about the Bidens and who is alleged by the FBI to have talked to Russian intelligence um, we don't know about what. We don't know exactly when. The FBI said it was uh, it was um, around that same time period. Um, but so NBC News is taking this as evidence that okay, so back then, back when in 2016, or no, excuse me, um, in, 2020. in 2020, when the um, when the laptop story came out and all the intelligence officials said this looks like Russian information, and then Politico, you know, actually went a step further and said it is. They're saying it is Russian information, misinformation, even, is, even though that wasn't exactly what the intelligence officials said. And then it was ignored in the mainstream media and suppressed on social media on this recommendation. That action, which has widely now been seen as a bad series of events to have occurred, was 
is retroactively justified because here's an example of someone who did, in fact, or who is alleged by the FBI to have spread Russian-based misinformation, to have injected that into the kind of Biden family stuff, which to me doesn't follow whatsoever because, again, the Hunter Biden laptop story has not, no one has ever shown any way in which it was motivated by, yeah. in which there was Russian involvement. It seems like he just, le I mean, it, he left the laptop at the store and the guy came forward and gave it to Republican political what, campaign yeah, officials. Yeah, what the That's implication what was at the time was that you shouldn't trust that the contents of the laptop were authentic. The, the effort, the characterization of the laptop as misinformation what seemed to suggest that we don't know if the information, the laptop itself belonged to Hunter Biden, whether or not it was fraudulently stolen from him as opposed to just left at the store, whether or not we should believe anything coming from the laptop itself. And the letter signed by 51 former intelligence officials was taken as almost proof that it was in fact not legitimate information on the laptop itself, regardless of what you take from it, yes. that that information wasn't legitimate. And what's interesting is this NBC News article then goes in, picks out the caveating language from within that initial 51 um, intelligence officer report and says, well, look, they always said that, quote, we want to emphasize we do not know if the emails are genuine or not and do not have evidence of Russian involvement. You know, they always said we don't know for sure that there is Russian involvement, but right. now it's validated when, in fact, the framing of that article and the title of that article was taken up and run with by the news media, the liberal news media, generally speaking, as proof positive that there was nothing authentic about the laptop. And by Biden, him, Biden himself. Yeah. When he defended himself and his son against these charges in his debate with Trump, he cited that letter yeah. from those intelligence officials. Yeah. Um, Nobody cared about the caveats in the letter right, at the time, no. saying, well, we don't actually know if this is real or not. Right. They were, it was used as proof. And so now, using this revisionist history, where it's like, everyone was so careful at the time. Yeah. We all dotted our I's and crossed our T's, but this now is new confirmation that we were all right to be skeptical of the providence of the of the laptop well it doesn't it doesn't say anything about that but there's this bigger issue right about whether or not the uh, something core to the republicans claim about there being a bribery scheme here is now undermined by someone who made a really clear and arguably compelling bribery uh, claim at the time as a trusted fbi witness for 10 years him now having his credibility undermined by this relationship, which hasn't really been unpacked very far, but mm -hmm. this relationship apparently that he has with uh, Russian intelligence officials, does that still go to the heart of the Republicans' claim here that there was some kind of pay-to-play scheme? Yeah. We need to hear more about the detail, what evidence the FBI and what uh, prosecutors, because they're charging him with lying to authorities, you know, what... I would like to see more of what they actually have to prove that. I, I, I am not... Incredulous. I'm not saying they're, I'm not rejecting that. That could very well be the case. Maybe they have compelling evidence that it is the case that he did talk to Russian intelligence, that he had anti-Biden animus, and so then he kind of like invented or exaggerated claims about his knowledge of them and their business dealings. I am not rejecting any of that. That could be totally plausible mm -hmm. to me, and I would like to see what evidence they have to marshal that. Now we do also know that you know, lying to federal investigators is a, frankly, easy crime to commit if they're out to entrap you for having done such things. So is it one of those situations, or can they materially contradict what he said, and can they demonstrate that what he said had to do with conversations he had with, with, Russian, um, with Russian intelligence? Again, that might well be the case, 
and maybe it undermines the um, the the. the Comer investigation or the, the impeachment proceedings. Again, impeachment proceedings, which I don't think, even with this, had been borne out enough to take. Now, you can continue to investigate it. Maybe this knocks one of the pegs down. But, um, of course, we can't just, you know, take the FBI at their word. We have to see what they have and where's their proof that he made this kind of accusation up. Yeah, for all that, there's discourse around whether or not Trump's various legal woes have an impact on his voter base or whether it should have an impact on his voter base. I haven't seen as much discourse around what impact, if any, Republicans' efforts to re impeach uh, Joe Biden or dig into the bribery accusations surrounding his son are actually affecting Democratic voters or Democratic turnout. It does seem to me that, especially post-October 7th, the discourse around whether or not people are going to stay home and the vote for Biden is going to be depressed is much more about his substantive conduct in the Middle East as opposed to mm -hmm. some scandal at home. And I do wonder if Republicans at a certain point are getting to the, getting the sense that they're not getting much juice out of this particular squeeze. And is there a way to talk about this Biden impeachment? I mean, I think there was a time when it felt like, well, Trump's coming under all this legal uh, scrutiny. Let's just throw everything on the wall that sticks. And if everybody is in legal trouble, then maybe that makes um, Trump seem like less of an outlier, less of a corrupt figure. I don't, I don't know that, that that's working in the same way. Um, now. I, I don't know that it's really affecting anybody. <laughs> I think that the, the status quo might mm -hmm. be that we just don't care as American voters anymore if a candidate is embroiled in a legal dispute. And to the extent that we do, we just don't think that the Biden stuff is anywhere near as serious or at least as voluminous as the Trump stuff. You know, th this has me, um, this recalls to mind um, a story I read in The Atlantic this morning by Adam Rubenstein, who used to work, the, he was a conservative at the New York Times under uh, the, you know, the op-ed page editor who got, um, who got fired after the Tom Cotton op-ed. I mm -hmm. think this was the guy who helped, who commissioned it, actually. And uh, he has, like, a series of anecdotes showing how, how um, impossible it was to work there with the groupthink and the hostility to actual ideological diversity and conservative ideas, et cetera. And, and he says at one point in the article that um, it, it, it was very clear during the laptop story development discussion that you know people the paper kept referring to it as unsubstantiated even though it had been substantiated mm -hmm. even though there was really, like there was nothing to undergird the idea that this was that the actual information was wrong or russian or like yeah. what constructed by google ai or something we yeah. didn't have that technology yet that was kind of what they were saying that <laughs> yeah. it was literally made up which didn't which would have taken us so was the laptop guy a hired actor it like it took a kind of extraordinary right. no, series of that. circumstances but they were all they all acted that way this is what he claims is so many of his colleagues acted that way that that was obvious that it was russian misinformation and also that they were clearly worried that if they did anything to give um to make it seem plausible or help demonstrate that it was not russian misinformation that that would hurt joe biden and that was not something they wanted to do yeah which shows you how the the media was handling the story yeah and, and I was speaking speculatively before, but here are some numbers. Unsurprisingly, the majority of Democrats at 90% don't support a Biden impeachment inquiry. Yeah. But what we really kind of want to know about is what independents, potential gettable voters, think. And the most recent poll I found was from December 13th. So again, that was not the most recent. Independents clocked in at 45% approving 
and 50% disapproving of the impeachment process. So about yeah, evenly yeah. split, but slightly more against the impeachment of Joe Biden. So maybe that is cause, at least politically, for uh, Republicans to keep trying to uh, keep this one alive. Yeah, like you, my sense is that it is something Republican partisans absolutely want. And so uh, Comer and others have to keep going along with it because their base is demanding it. I don't think it's really bringing people over from the independents from that category yeah. I, and frankly of all the things that are really sinking Joe Biden right now it's it's other stuff it's it's age it's some policy stuff that has the left mad at him and etc not, not just the left but I take your point yeah more rising right after this we've got some bombshell reporting from the Daily Beast which indicates that one of the reporters for the New York Times' Hamas mass rape story has a history of liking several genocidal posts on X, including one that urged the Israeli military to turn the Gaza Strip into a, quote, slaughterhouse. The Times announced it was launching an investigation into that freelancer, Anant Schwartz, as a result of the light social media post. It goes on, per the Daily Beast, Schwartz began reporting for the Times just in November when her stories focused on Israel's response to the October 7th attacks. Her most prominent piece was a co-byline co article detailing sexual violence allegedly committed by Hamas during October 7th. The story had drawn internal criticism from the staffers and led the Times to pull an episode of the Daily Podcast on the original story, which we covered here on Rising. Additional investigations into Schwartz's social media history revealed that she had liked posts related to the 40 beheaded babies narrative, which has since been disproven. Friend of the show, Ryan Grimm, noted on X that this sounds too crazy to believe, but it appears Anant Schwartz had never been a reporter before. She was a filmmaker and saw the 40 Babies hoax, believed it, shared it, and then was sub subsequently tasked by the New York Times to adjudicate the final record on October 7th atrocities. Her coverage then fueled the slaughter. This follows other indications the New York Times may have had a pro-Israel bias. Former Times reporter Soraya Shockley recounted her time with the Daily Podcast on X, writing, quote, while recording the show, I pushed back called out the wishy-washy pro-Israeli slant and responds an editor outright said, you shouldn't work on this because you're Palestinian. Nothing ended up happening to that editor because, of course, nothing happened to that editor. The Times, as an institution, sees nothing wrong with what she did or the way they approach coverage. So I want to be clear that the real story here isn't about this one journalist. It's about whether or not the institution of the New York Times chose to allow someone with barely any journalistic experience whatsoever, to co-byline a front-page story that was put forward as proving. I don't think that's too strong a word to say, proving. It was it was taken and run with in the same way that the uh, article with 51 intelligence officers were supposed to have proven the invalidity of the um, 100 laptop story. This New York Times story was supposed to be proof positive that there was, in fact, a mass planned um, campaign of rapes that happened on October 7th. And then that proof was used, into used to justify why there needed to be such an disproportionate response from Israel on the Gaza Strip as a whole. And so for the story to begin crumbling because of the intrepid reporting of people like um, Aaron Maté and Max Blumenthal at the Gray Zone and others at Electric Intifada, who were actually going through the sourcing that was used in said story, the pushback from one of the families that was used as the prime example of rape in that story, saying, 
we, we don't believe that our family member who was killed so tragically on October 7th was also sexually assaulted or raped. Um, going through the changing narratives from some of the um, people that were used as primary sources in that article, who at first said nothing about rape when they were initially interviewed and then changed their story weeks on down the line. After all of that reporting, so many news outlets continue to look away. And now there's this scrutiny that's going to the heart of the source, the person who actually wrote the article, who apparently had no journalistic background, had been demonstrated as a person who has fallen for disproven hoaxes already with the 10 uh, dead baby story, and who was brought forward for some reason by the New York Times to co-byline this incredibly important piece of reporting on the front page, it's difficult to understand institutionally how they're going to get past this without having some really serious shakeups that go beyond simply not using this freelancer anymore. Yeah, it uh, looks like they really screwed up with this one. Um, obviously, the some of the work has been called into question. The fact that this, I didn't even realize that this was not a just an employee of the New York Times. Right. I mean, they, they, it's a very well-staffed paper with a lot of excellent reporters embedded in the Middle East, in Israel, um, who are experts here. So to rely on this person who, as you said, didn't have a lot of experience, um, I, 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 it's interesting. The uh, I mean, Part of this is that she had liked some tweets that, that, um, that are bad. Uh, of course, the, you know, that it's a weird policy, I think, to apply to, uh, if you're going to use freelancers, to say that well, they can't have, be liking tweets that take partisan positions. I mean, the whole social media policy yeah. for reporters versus right. opinion people is a I little think it would be different. Yeah, but even I mean, this has been a, a problem for yeah. a lot of, or for a lot of outlets that are like that are magazines where everyone's writing is a mix of news and opinion. Sure. I, I know a lot of journalists, a lot of you know, straight news reporters get annoyed by um, by so by Twitter policies that don't apply to you or I as, as, <laughs> as opinion havers we're we're given more free reign uh, and I'm not specifically talking about our, our organization but just um, just in the media in general so I wouldn't if she was just being investigated for like you know not having not having followed a a Twitter policy that shouldn't, I don't know, that should apply to a freelancer. But it goes well beyond that. And, you know, we've raised concerns and we've had guests on who have raised concerns. And the New York Times clearly is validating some of these concerns as that they not doing the podcast episode right. was a pretty significant step. Right. In and, and to be clear, for those who aren't regular consumers of the Daily Podcast or consumers of the New York Times at all, it is very common for the New York Times, when they have a huge explosive story, the way that um, Mass Hamas rape story from December was this huge explosive story, to follow it up with their daily podcast, it's like 20 minutes every single day during the week, that often brings the authors from those headline stories, top headline stories, mm -hmm. and gets them to put it to the public in podcast form. The idea that they had planned to do exactly that, but the podcast team raised sufficient questions about the sourcing of the story as they were just trying to put the podcast together, mm -hmm. that it made it impossible for them to go forward, is an enormous red flag, which frankly should have gotten even more coverage in and of itself. Now, Anat Schwartz has shut down her account, um, uh, made it private, and apparently tried to scrub it as people have been going through and finding the things that she's liked and weighed in on. Um, one of the, the, I think, more egregious examples is her liking this tweet. Uh, which they, which uh, someone named David uh, Vertham says, turn the strip into a slaughterhouse. If a hair falls from their head, execute security prisoners, violate any norm on the way to victory for them to see and be seen. I mean, this isn't just like casual, I hope, you know, Israel wins, Hamas needs to be punished type of language. This is violate all norms. 
including presumptively international law, humanitarian norms, anything um, for retrib uh, retribution here. And this is someone who was tasked again with co-authoring a front page story that was held up as proof that there was a mass rape campaign executed by Hamas on October 7th. And already there have been lies that have been immediately called out by the family members cited in the story or used as examples in the story immediately after publication. We're not gonna hear the kind of attention being paid. We're not gonna see the kind of attention being paid to this, obviously, as we saw to the initial reporting. And I think that's a kind of a tragedy. What, what is the saying that a lie goes around the world twice before the truth gets out of the gate? Um, and so much of the damage has already been done. How many people have died in Gaza since these kinds of stories came out in December that seem to validate ending the ceasefire and continuing with the siege and continuing with cleanse, uh, pushing people from parts of northern Gaza increasingly to the south where now half the population is quartered in Rafah yeah, pending I, a ground invasion. Yeah, I, I know that's your view of it. I, I would say that it, it's not, what is happening in Gaza is not more or less justified, depending on what the extent of the sexual I would think so, was. too. It's not, and, it's just and not so, And the so case. then what is then the justification for repeatedly having these stories that are proven to be fiction, whether it's there's a mass Hamas um, uh, uh, headquarters underneath a hospital that was that amounted to being a handful of guns behind an MRI machine, whether it's there, there were 40 beheaded babies, which Joe Biden repeated um, from the podium as the president of the United States of America, even after his own team had told him, don't say that, that's not substantiated. He went ahead and ignored their advice and said it anyway. And there are many people who still believe that to be the case. We see pro-Israel uh, advocates coming on our show and going elsewhere, still parroting Alan Dershowitz, still parroting those kinds of claims that have been long debunked. And now this mass rape story is one that I think is, is something that's brought up almost universally by people who are talking about why Israel has the right to defend itself in the way that it's been doing. And I put defend itself in quotation marks for people who are listening and not watching. I mean, they, right, they don't need to do that. There are piles of, you can argue that Israel is right to defend itself or is defending itself based on the piles of dead bodies of the hundreds of people killed during the terrorist attack. They're responding to the to the terrorist attack. Now, I think it would be healthy for the New York Times. You know, there were a lot of claims made in that article. Um, the, one of the families denounced some of the claims. Others are just were not corroborated. Is testimony from from survivors, from uh, first medical responders. The New York Times should task someone who's a better, who's a better, more seasoned journalist with re-interviewing those Absolutely. people and producing some new journalism that can maybe do a better job of substantiating or demonstrate it is, was not true. That would be a certainly worthy exercise. Absolutely. More rising right after this. On the two-year anniversary since the start of the war in Ukraine, President Vladimir Zelensky says 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed after Russia's invasion. According to BBC News, some experts estimate the number to be even higher. Also on the two-year anniversary of the war, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg expressed the organization's continued support for Ukraine and said the country was closer than ever to NATO. President Putin started this war because he wanted to close NATO's door and deny Ukraine the right to choose his own path. But he has achieved the exact opposite. 
Ukraine is now closer to NATO than ever before. We are helping to make your forces more and more interoperable with allies. We will open a new joint analysis training and education center in Poland together. And we are deepening our political ties through the NATO-Ukraine Council, where we consult and make decisions together. Ukraine will join NATO. It is not a question of if, but of when. This comes as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs Victoria Nuland seemed to admit the quiet part out loud when it comes to United States investment in Ukraine. By the way, we have to remember that the bulk of this money is going right back into the U.S. economy to make those weapons. Meanwhile, Congresswoman Nancy Mays said the White House has yet to define its mission in Ukraine and told Fox News yesterday that, quote, the one thing that you did not hear Jake Sullivan or Joe Biden say today or really ever is defining our mission in Ukraine. They have yet to define that mission. If we had the answer, we'd be talking about it and perhaps there'd be more support for it. But let's go to that Victoria Nuland um, statement, which I think shows you just how <laughs> wrong the whole approach is. They're like, oh, we're doing... We're doing enrich like it's it's good to be sending more money to Ukraine because we build the the weapons here. Look, that's just a transfer from from the the broader economy from the taxpayers to a specific industry. Mm -hmm. Yes, it, it it is good when you do that for the people in that industry. That doesn't mean it's good for the economy as a whole to just like take money from some one person and give them to the other. You haven't like generated economic activity by doing that because the people from whom the money you took in the first place would have used that to, you know, buy groceries or maybe invest or build a new bill. Like they're going to use it for economic activity. So just because you force people to give money to another group doesn't help the economy overall. It certainly helps the defense industry, which is what we worry about in this whole thing, that so much of our foreign policy is guided by and influenced by people who specifically benefit from the kind of interventionist foreign policy that so many of us worry is actually damaging to our national security. Yeah, there's something very perverse about being politically opposed to any kind of redistributional politics that's supposed to target the poor or to, say, fund infrastructure projects that broadly benefit all Americans, but to say it's good when we spend billions of dollars if some of it trickles down to the defense industry. This is exactly the kind of cyclical involvement of the military-industrial complex that we were so prophetically warned about 60, 70 years ago. What's also pretty striking about um, this series of clips is the fact that Jens Stoltenberg, just at the end of last year, admitted that the narrative that so many people on the left and more broadly in the anti-interventionist space have been articulating as to the cause of Russia's invasion, not the justification of it, but simply articulating the cause of it, that being this threat of NATO expansion that was a betrayal of promises that had been made to Russia. He admitted that that, in fact, was the narrative. That is, that he agrees that, that is the narrative, despite the fact that so many of us have been accused of being Putin puppets, Russian acolytes, for simply articulating that is the truth, and that there was an opportunity to prevent the invasion from happening in the first place by assuring Putin that, in fact, right. Ukraine would not um, join NATO. Now right. we hear Or outright the admitting podium. them and then daring Russia to do something right. about it, keeping them in this dangling middle ground right. where they could be invaded and Russia felt, felt aggressed again, was the stupidest of all worlds. Right. So now to stand at the podium and, and, to, and a kind of, you know, thumbing your nose kind of a gesture and say, well, we're going to let them in anyway, or they're closer to NATO. Ukraine as a country is closer to NATO than they ever have been. It's difficult to understand what 
political mm -hmm. purpose that kind of rhetoric serves, especially when, again, you have U.S. Um, representatives, you have uh, m members of Congress and the State Department, et cetera, saying things like, we should not only be okay with this war because money is trickling down to domestic weapons manufacturers, but that we should also be happy with this war because it's an efficient way to weaken Putin without American bodies being on the line. It really is a, an out loud way of saying how little one cares about yeah. the value of the Ukrainian lives that are very much on the, on the line, that number at least 31,000, and that's not counting the civilian deaths. Yeah, and there's no, there's no way for them to win. I wish our, our um, I, I wish they valued the lives of the Ukrainian soldiers, as absolutely, but, and I wish they also, our policymakers, valued um, the American taxpayers' contribution to this. No one likes to see money just set on fire or used for weapons that blow things up that then have to be rebuilt. It's the most destructive use of funding for, it's for destruction. Yeah. And they, they would say, no, that's good for the economy. It's totally wrongheaded. Um, look, at the same time, I understand that at this point, after having been in, invaded and attacked by Russia, um, most of Ukraine in the, in the um, uh, uh, western part of the country does feel um, more anti-Russian and more a closer proximity to the West and to NATO. And um, like maybe now, because of this reality we've gotten to, you can have some kind of peace deal where... Russia keeps the territory it acquired that was disputed and was Russian-leaning and wanted to be part of Russia or wanted to be not part of Ukraine. And then the rest of the country has a justification, an agreement with Russia that it's not going to get invaded again, either because it, it has that agreement in place or because it does join NATO. Fine, that's what we have to get to as an agreement, but it, with, it has to proceed from the understanding that Ukraine is not going to end up reconquering the territory that Russia took. That's yeah. just not realistic, and there's no way for it to happen. Well, John Mearsheimer, who's a um, political scientist at the University of Chicago, who has been really prophetic on this issue and uh, a number of others, uh, was recently on Useful Idiots with Katie Halper and, and Aaron Maté, and he gave a really interesting interview, and he said that he looked at the uh, Tucker Carlson interview with Putin in a way that most of the mainstream media didn't, and really tried to hear what he was saying and get some sense of what his motivations were. Obviously, the Western press has been reporting the idea that Putin has a desire to conquer all of Europe, that there's a kind of a westward march that knows no end. Um, and he made a different, very different kind of argument, saying that both kind of um, based on what he's saying and also strategically, there's very little evidence of that partly because the level of resistance that you get from occupying a country where there are Russian speakers, people who are sympathetic to you and your national identity, versus trying to take a city like Kyiv and holding a city like Kyiv where there's going to be sustained active resistance for a number of reasons are two very different projects. And as much as Ukraine is struggling to resist Russia, Russia also knows that it has its own limits and there's a trade-off in how much it wants to invest in pursuing and continuing this continued mm -hmm. conflict. So all, all of that is to say, I think that we are being really underserved, the public as a whole is being underserved by um, a media that is not interrogating some of the prevailing narratives. And I think Nancy Mace is absolutely right to say, at very least, if you want America to keep funding this war effort, you have to define the terms or what the goals are and in our involvement. And it can't just be bleeding Putin dry um, for the rest of right. all time without an end when there's the consequence of Ukrainian lives being ended as a consequence right. and also American tax dollars that I would argue could be spent more efficiently and effectively elsewhere. And where no one, no one believes, no military experts 
continue to believe it's possible for a total Ukrainian victory that involves taking back the country. Yeah. So that has to be part of the calculation, and we're not we're not seeing truth telling from our own administration yeah. on that. that point that's yet. the realist perspective from folks yeah. like Marsh Emmer for sure. More rising right after this. Tragic news out of Gaza. A Palestinian baby died Friday from acute starvation in northern Gaza, confirmed by the Shithub News Agency. The news of the child's death comes after the United Nations issued warnings of an explosion in child fatalities. The infant was quickly rushed to Gaza's Al Shifa hospital. The medical personnel were unable to save him. The death is the latest evidence that mass starvation is hitting the Gaza Strip particularly hard as Israel refuses to allow desperately needed food and supplies to enter the area. Meanwhile, pro-Palestine protests are escalating as the Israel-Hamas war enters its fifth month. In a viral video making the rounds online, a U.S. Air Force soldier just set himself on fire before 1 p.m. on Sunday in front of the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. The soldier later succumbed to his injuries, as reported by an Air Force spokesman. Aaron Bushnell, who was just 25 years old, said in a video taken right before he died, quote, I will not be complicit in genocide. His final Facebook post, Bushnell wrote, Many of us like to ask ourselves, what would I do if I was alive during slavery or the Jim Crow South or apartheid? What would I do if my country was committing genocide? The answer is, you're doing it right now. Meanwhile, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer pushed back against voters who said they don't plan on voting for Biden in the state's primaries over his handling of the Israel-Hamas war. On Sunday's CNN State of the Union, Whitmer, who is a co-chair of Biden's 2024 campaign, told host Dana Bash those voting uncommitted will help former President Trump get reelected. MSNBC joined in on the fun as the network spoke with a panel of Michigan voters, all of whom expressed skepticism of Biden for his ongoing support of Israel, with one saying, we are not stupid enough to elect you again. Yeah, the whiplash between reporting on a 25-year-old active duty soldier who felt so strongly about what's going on in Palestine that he would self-immolate uh, and, and lose his own life in that way. And then, Mich and then Michigan Governor Whitmer saying, okay, but vote for Biden. It, it's really incredible. There are people, I think the depth of feeling about the moral stakes of what's going on in Gaza is being completely missed um, by our political representatives, particularly the ones on the Democratic side of the aisle who purport to care about such things. The expectations are different from um, Republicans, although the feeling is really broadly shared that a ceasefire is necessary. Stories like uh, the child, the, chi the infant who died was two months old, I believe, never knew a Gaza that wasn't under siege, never you know, had a, had a mother who experienced being pregnant with him and perhaps unable to get the kind of prenatal care that she was used to and should have been getting right up into the moment of birth and then birthed him into this hellscape and who ultimately died, was able to survive this bombing campaign, but died of starvation at the same time that, as we reported, I think, last week, the World Food Program tried to resume deliveries to northern Gaza, where this child died, um, but announced a suspicion citing Israeli gunfire and a collapse of civil order. There are right-wing protests happening at the southern gate, uh, where aid has been arriving in scant quantities to the Gaza Strip. Uh, where they've set up a bounty castle. Um, Far-right far Israeli protesters have set up a, a bounty car a castle in a carnival atmosphere where food trucks are trying to get in to save starving infants from meeting a very similar fate as this child. 
And it's a really dystopian reality that we can all see and we can all look at because these Israeli protesters are broadcasting what they're doing. We have social media. We can see it all. And the response from our government is just so completely out of step with what the public feeling is and how it's being reflected in actions like um, Aaron Bushnell's tragic self-immolation. It's interesting to hear Gretchen Whitmer, and she's not the only person to sound this note, that expressing any skepticism or opposition to Biden on policy grounds in a, in a primary that he's absolutely going to win because he is going to be the nominee unless he decides to step aside, um, that that is helping Trump is, um, it's that vote blue no matter who kind of, well, mindset for the general would being put into a, a primary that's not a real primary. Joe Biden is going to win the nomination. Um, it's, a, it's a protest signal that many Democratic voters are interested in sending to get him to change course. It does not, it's just, it's not designed to help Trump. It doesn't functionally help Trump at all. So to see that excuse being presented um, over and over again, that, oh, what do, you, what do you want, Trump to be elected? Well, no one is, on the Democratic side, have, has not gotten to the point where people are even declining to vote for Biden in a general election over this against Trump. We're still just talking about the primary where 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 there where there is not a real primary. Right, they, they, by design, there is no real choice or contrast. And so some people, um, including in my home state of Michigan, where there is a large Muslim population, are going to express their dissatisfaction without any intention of translating that into support for Donald Trump or whoever the Republican is. And even that is being they're being shamed out of that course of action. Yeah, and to be clear, I, I really I appreciate um, that so much of this is being driven by the political activities of Arab Americans and Muslim Americans and concentrated in, in Michigan. But it's also really important not to miss the fact that there are constituency groups well outside of that particular demographic that completely agree with them and are supportive of this abandoned Biden movement. Trump, at this point, has a historically high amount of the black support. That's not even including black voters who have a strong distaste for Donald Trump, but will stay home over this issue. There, I saw a poll recently that showed in every single religious demographic group, more support the ceasefire than oppose the ceasefire. With After Muslims, I believe Catholics were the highest represented group. Um, saying that they support a ceasefire as, as opposed to uh, being opposed to it. And every single group, Protestant, even Jewish voters, more support the ceasefire. 50% of Jewish voters, according to that poll, supported a ceasefire, and it was a lower than 50, I, I don't have it in front of me, but a lower than 50% amount that opposed a ceasefire. So at a certain point, it becomes almost like a kind of um, erasure to focus exclusively on the extent to which Arab Americans and Muslim Americans are opposed to it, because it enables the Democratic Party, I think, to minimize the volume of the pushback that exists and the, and the widespread nature of the sentiment that exists toward Joe Biden, because he is seen, I think rightly so, as enabling one of the worst humanitarian atrocities we've ever seen. And as we are moving into babies, two months olds starving to death, because not just the blocking of the aid from um, Israel and the firing on these um, uh, these uh, trucks that has been well documented in which we've covered, but also America's choice to completely and uncritically validate Israel's claim that the uh, that UNRWA, which is the primary aid support of Palestine, was involved in October 7th in a meaningful way, 
and that that justified America stopping funding and bringing nine other countries immediately with them in a, a move that dramatically cut UNRWA's funding so that they say that we're going to run out of aid by the end of this month, this, this short month that we are in right now of February. Those are decisions that are directly tied to the choices that Joe Biden is making at the same time that he and his administration are begging Americans to ensure that he is back in office again. So when you look at the panel that we we alluded to, that I think was a CNN panel, where those voters said, the choice isn't on me. The responsibility isn't on me if Donald Trump gets elected. You, as a Democratic Party, had a choice to put forward a more electable candidate and have a choice to have the candidate that you are backing right now make different choices and turn the tide on how he's choosing to interact with Bibi Netanyahu in the decision-making in Gaza. You choosing not to do that. Biden staying in the course on his policy attitude toward Israel, and the Democratic Party choosing to stick behind Biden, even though we've told you we are willing to vote and wanting to vote for Democrats, they want to defeat Trump. But the blood is not on my hands, it's not on yours. And so I think that that framing is really powerful. And we'll see if the Democratic Party wakes up or if they suffer the consequences of their own actions. I mean, to some degree, continuing to fund um, both Israel and Ukraine is the highest political priority of the yes. administration and some Republicans as well. Yes. But they were willing to give Republicans everything they said they wanted yes. on the border in order to make sure they could keep sending American tax dollars overseas. Yep. That was that that shows you what the priority is. Yep. Even though Americans dissatisfaction with that norm is bipartisan and cross ideological, there's deep skepticism of it, but there's not enough skepticism of it among the people who actually... Yeah, what, what happened to Trump and kids in cages and all of that yeah. narrative that was key to, I think, him losing in 2020? The humanitarian yeah. evil... Well, that policy that itself didn't even, as, didn't even change. It was a continuation from that Obama. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> that is exactly the point, that yeah. it's, liberals have been exposed as being very empty in their self-presentation as morally superior to Republicans. And it's not because... This is letting Republicans off the hook. But if liberals' resistance only amounts to lip service that promptly disappears when the bad actor is someone with a D after their name, then there begins to be an increasingly credible argument that a genuine resistance is better off with a Republican in office, where at least you can get a Democratic electeds being critical of the people who are doing the wrongdoing, which is never going to be the case as long as Joe Biden or another Democrat is the one sitting in the White House. They don't even want you to vote against him in a primary. He's guaranteed to win because there's no opposition. Yep, that's right. More rising right after this. We do have some updates on the tragic death of 16-year-old Nex Benedict. Now, this story has gotten a lot of interest. It's very sad. This teenager um, dying after an altercation in a bathroom at their school. The teenager was alleged to be non-binary, uh, but it is now not at all clear that the death was related to what happened in the bathroom or injuries sustained from it. And new video calls into question a lot of the details that have been circulating in the mainstream media about the death. Um, including, frankly, whether the person actually was non-binary, uh, whether they had a relationship with the attackers, and what was, in fact, the ultimate cause of death. Now, this following video is from the nurse's office where next Benedict was sent after being involved in an altercation with three girls. Of note, Benedict is referred to as a girl in the video with no pushback from the teenager, though her, the 
teenager's friends say that next Benedict prefers they them pronouns. Benedict actually claims to have instigated, started the fight with the girls in the bathroom by um, throwing water at them. Let's take a look at this. So they just up and decided to just start messing with you. There was there yeah, was... because of the way that we dress. Okay, so you didn't do anything at all at any point in time that would have, uh, even a couple days ago or even a month ago or, or anything like that. I don't know these girls. Okay, all right. We were going to stack chairs, and we after we stacked chairs, we mm -hmm. went to the bathroom. Okay. And I was talking with my friends, they were talking with their friends, and we were laughing, and they had said something like, why do they laugh like that? And, and mm -hmm. they were talking about us in front of us. Mm -hmm. And so I went up there and I poured water on them, okay. and then all three of them came at me. Uh, you know, uh, pouring the water, because I'm, I'm trying to get this in my mind so I see, you know, as best I had I a can. water bottle. Thank you. That's exactly. Where did you Where did you get this water? Was it a cup you found? Was it your water mm, bottle? It's my uh, your daily water bottle yeah. you carry around. Okay. I think it was a plastic water bottle. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so you squirted them with water, threw water on whatever it was. Okay, um, then at that point, what happened? Uh, they came at me, they grabbed out of my hair, I grabbed onto them, uh, I threw one of them into a paper towel dispenser, and then they got my legs out from under me and got me on the ground and started beating the out of me. Okay. okay. And then my friends tried to jump in and help, but I'm, I'm not sure I blacked out. When I will absolutely do a port if that's yes, what you want. I, I can do, okay, but I'm just letting you know, if the other party wants to do the same thing, she's going to be, uh, the assault will be on her as well. Now, later on in the video, Benedict claims they didn't know the girls they were fighting with, and additionally, police reported that a preliminary investigation into next Benedict's death was not a result of physical trauma from the altercation and that the cause of death is pending until toxicology results, other testing results, are in fact completed. Following Benedict's death, many public figures and LGBT advocates spoke out and demanded justice. Vice President Kamala Harris tweeted out, my heart goes out to Next Benedict's family, friends, and their entire community. To the LGBTQ plus youth who are hurting and are afraid right now, President Joe Biden and I see you, we stand with you, and you are not alone. LGBT advocacy group Human Rights Campaign sent letters to the Department of Education and the Department of Justice asking for a full investigation into the circumstances surrounding Benedict's death. This really does feel like a tragedy, a 16-year-old yes. who's lost their lives, that has, has been politicized prematurely yes. um, by a number of parties. I know, I think there's a, a, good, a good faith reason to want to extend one's condolences to a, a family, and particularly when someone's a member of a marginalized community in a state where, frankly, that very community has come under target. This is, mm -hmm. you know, Oklahoma, where uh, Raya Chaddock of Libs of TikTok has recently been appointed to this library position. There is some concern about whether or not there's this st stochastic terrorism happening where people feel more inclined to attack verbally or physically members of the LGBT uh, plus community. But in this instance, it's not super clear how this child even identified, much right. less whether or not this altercation had anything to do with her um, identification, her gender identification. Right. Much less whether um, Max Benedict, frankly, was the w was just a victim in it or also a participant. I mean, there it yeah. sounds like 
and this is a, and this is also this is a common school experience. I sure. think we're I mean it's again ter there's tragedy full stop that someone died for whatever reason a kid died yeah. and that is awful and people should offer condolences and if they were bullied as a result of the way they dress and look that is bad it's it's a co it's the most common experience in schools but we should work to make yeah. schools safer places for everyone places where there's less harassment for everyone but it yeah, it sounds like a very typical making fun of someone escalated in in both directions with this person throwing water at people and and actually doing a very aggressive physical action against one of those people i think saying slamming their head into a paper towel dispenser and then they fought and and there was a scuffle and look this is something schools should address and uh, if, if you were handing out detentions or suspensions as a result of kids feuding it for all involved that would be totally uh, appropriate to involve the police in these kinds of routine scuffles at schools frankly i think is very very bad and is not the direction we want to go and uh police I, we don't want to waste the police's time criminalizing everything that happens that's bad between teenagers yeah if there's if there's really extreme crime damaging crime you got to involve the police i suppose but these kinds of you know, pushing somebody in the lockers, pushing somebody in the bathroom, knocking somebody down. These are very common occurrences that schools themselves have to work on with counselors and parents and making it a criminal matter. What you're going to give any of these kids, you're going to give them criminal records because they had a fight in the bathroom. I mean, that's, that's great. Does anyone actually think we should do that? Yeah. And look, to the mother's credit in the tape we just watched, she seems to indicate that she would like the police to bring charges and the cops as well, just to be clear, given what your right. child just said, this could go both ways. Later on, um, the mom, Sue Benedict, said that she didn't want to file charges at the time and instead asked police to speak to officials at Oeso High School about issues on campus among students. That's from the AP. Now, also to be clear about the timeline of this, it really isn't obvious. It's not evident. There's no support for the idea that the, that um, Benedict's death was actually the result of this altercation, no matter how serious or not serious right. it was. That's going to the autopsy. They went home um, after you know this this school day, and subsequently, I believe it was the next day, started having um, symptoms. At which point, Benedict's mom called uh, the the uh, ambulance. So, the day after the fight. Uh, Benedict's breathing became shallow. Their eyes were rolling to the back of their uh, to the back of their head, and their hands were curled, according to audio released by the Owasso uh, police office. And that's the point at which she succumbed. And as you you mentioned in your read, we're waiting to hear back from more of the taxology and other reports to see what other things might have caused um, Benedict yeah. to actually die. It seems like um, the, the media has really has gotten ahead of itself on this one. Look, it's a it's a sad thing to happen, and we can all hope for safer schools, schools that are free of less bullying and harassment, again, for everyone, um, including LGBT kids, if indeed this person actually even does fall into this category, which is not really clear to me. But, uh, you know, what, what is there to, the calls for a federal investigation? Yeah, is that's... there something to federally investigate at this point? Is yeah. there, is, is that what we're... Is, is this a matter for the federal government? It, I don't it, know about that. Based on what we know so far, it just doesn't seem to be the case. Now, maybe it was Richie Torres who called for that. Maybe two days ago, yeah. the facts were not as clear, and maybe he would revise 
um, that desire yeah. now knowing what we know. I mean, we're, we're talking about this because it was covered a lot in, yeah. in major national news outlets, CNN, the AP, the New York Times, over and over. They, they had an article about this. They ran an opinion piece on this. So we're talking about it because it's, national news outlets are treating it like national news. I, I frankly don't think it is national news. It's, it's something that yeah. would be covered locally and should be dealt with and investigated absolutely to, you know, to clear up this mystery and, and maybe policies need to be updated in the school. You know, people shouldn't be loitering in the bathroom where they're away from, from teachers and counselors to have these kinds of incidents. But let's not, I don't know that we need to make a federal case out of this again when we don't really even know anything that indicates the way it was going. This is a negative example of, of, the, of everything becoming a national story yeah. when this, this is just not a national story. Yeah, and I, I made this comment before we went live here, but I think maybe if we did have more local reporting yeah. on the ground, who could get ahead of some of the factual circumstances of these things before they blow up, we never would have had to get to the point where people projected all of this external stuff onto facts that just don't seem to be bearing out in this case. But we'll let you know if there's anything more to know about this particular story. Stick around. More Rising for you Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez insisted the crisis at the border is a, quote, false narrative designed by Republicans to scaremonger voters. Speaking with MSNBC host Alex Wagner this weekend, AOC specifically called out the GOP for blocking legislation that would provide a legal path to citizenship on top of accusing them of xenophobia. Meanwhile, far away from the Washington, D.C. swamp, police in Athens, Georgia, arrested illegal immigrant Jose Ibarra in connection with the murder of Lake and Riley, a 22-year-old nursing student in Augusta University. Ibarra, the 26-year-old suspect, is an illegal citizen who had been living in Athens after having been previously apprehended for illegally crossing the border. In a statement to Fox News, Immigration and Customs Enforcement said Border Patrol arrested Ibarra back in 2022 for illegally entering the U.S. through Texas, but CBP released him for processing. Ibarra was then arrested again and let go before finally landing in police custody for allegedly murdering Riley. Now, Ibarra has been charged with murder with malice, felony murder, aggravated battery, aggravated assault, false imprisonment, kidnapping, hindering a 911 call, and concealing a deadly weapon. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a horrible tragedy. Um, horrible. The political implications of it that we were supposed to draw from it, though, are really unclear. I mean, the stats are unambiguous. Americans are over twice as likely to commit a violent crime as an undocumented person. And if anything, the argument that someone who is in the process of having their immigration claim litigated committed such a horrific act while those claims were pending is an argument for doing exactly what AOC is advocating for, which is to pass legislation that would speed up the process. Literally billions of dollars are in this uh, bipartisan bill mm -hmm. that I don't agree with, with other reasons, for other reasons, but billions of dollars uh, that would go to hiring administrative law judges and speeding up the administrative process of vetting these um, asylum claims and these immigration uh, process claims. Republicans oppose that, which in effect, unless you think that Donald Trump is going to be successful this time around in a way that he wasn't last time and do what he has recently said he wants to do, which is to use local police departments to start knocking on doors and going into communities and rounding people up and sending them back, you are just prolonging the inevitability of more undocumented people being in America without a final resolution of their immigration claims. Yeah, I mean, 
to me, murder is murder, so I don't really care if it was an illegal immigrant who did it or someone who came over on the Mayflower to be dealt with the same way. You know, if they yeah. want to, at first when I heard this story, I, I, because it was the illegal immigration status was being discussed so much, I thought that maybe, well, they had caught this person before for some other criminal matter and then had let them go or, 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 or even, as sometimes happens, sent them back to Mexico and had them come back in the country to commit more crimes. That doesn't seem to be the case here. The underlying crime was just the immigration issue, uh, again, which needs to be fixed. Um, I, th I think there's been there's a more legitimate outrage when you know police let go someone who who has the, an immigration status against them who committed some other crime and like that should be then okay then <laughs> something should be done about that. But that was not really the case here. Um, yeah, and to to wit, let's talk a little bit about the AOC clip. Now, I want to make sure it's characterized accurately because the conversation that AOC was having with Alex Wagner was a bit more substantive than just being about immigration. She was specifically making an argument about how, and we've talked about this before, Republicans of yore, of recent history, used to be pro-open border to, to the extent that it allowed cheap labor into the country that could be exploited. Guilty as charged. <laughs> right. Yeah, exploited. And that um, Republicans are kind of tacitly acknowledging that there is this labor hole that they're creating by wanting to have a hermetically sealed border, and that they are addressing it by having this campaign of rolling back child labor laws across the country. So at the state level, Republicans—this is from The Guardian um, at the end of last year—Republicans have led efforts to roll back child labor protections with bills introduced in at least 16 states. Um, Arkansas and Iowa have successfully rolled back child labor protections. I think a year or so ago, we, we um, covered the child labor in you, sure. on Iowa. Uh, and I understand that you have your feelings about this that are perhaps informed by your libertarian perspective, but most Americans believe that the child labor laws that were put into effect um, at the beginning of the last century were a good idea, um, and that especially these kind of dangerous jobs and slaughterhouses should not be done by children, especially when they are being put in that position to accommodate for a labor hole that is only being created because Republicans want to run on immigration instead of processing immigration more, claims more quickly and allowing people that are more able to consent to doing adult labor and more able to do that label because they are adults um, could be potentially in those positions. Not that they should be exploited in those positions or paid unfairly, but that they were, are better suited just as a matter of principle to those positions. I mean, I am for letting immigrants come to the country to work for just the reason you said, the reasons Republicans used to support, because we want people to, if people are willing to come here and, and work really hard and build houses and, and supply us with food and do everything we need for our economy to function, that's great. They want to do that. We want to offer them the jobs. That's fine. I don't think the government should get in the way. I, I do, frankly, feel the same way about... Um, Teenagers, I think, can in many cases consent to do. I don't think it should be forced on them. I don't think they should be sent to prison colonies. But if they want to get jobs, I don't have a problem with it. Um, I think there's a little bit of a, a mismatch here between what many and the progressives would say about uh, teenagers' right to make um, to have to control their own body and make medical decisions on their behalf without the state's intervention. I, which I generally agree with, but I would also extend that to them getting jobs, even maybe slightly dangerous jobs, if they want to do that. Again, I'm not forcing it on them, but I, that, that would be my child labor law. So I want to be really clear that this is a substantive labor issue that Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump both have both at different times 
uh, claimed credit for um, historically high uh, employment. But politicians oftentimes behind closed doors are not so wild about that because of what the implications are for labor power. The higher employment is, um, the less able employers are to deny benefits, pay raises, and the like. They can't just find a whole bunch of people who are unemployed sitting around to fill in when they fire the people who are demanding more for their labor. And that's what's going on here. So if you are a working person, understand that the dynamics that are afoot is that if you are no longer able to be pushed out because of the cheap, of cheap immigrant labor, there has to be a new source of cheap labor that can undermine um, your labor solidarity, your ability to agitate for better pensions, better pay, better benefits, those kinds of things. And that's where this effort to roll back um, child labor laws are coming from. So even if you do have a kind of um, kind of right-centered perspective that a kid should be able to do what they want to do regardless of our laws about truancy or the need for an education and things like that, the, remember that the reason that Republicans are pushing for this is not because they woke up one day and said, gosh, I really think that my 11-year-old should be allowed to work in a slaughterhouse because that's freedom. It's because they woke up one day and said, I have these corporate donors who are frustrated that they don't have as much control over the labor market as they once did. And so we got to figure out a way to soften it up a little bit. 11-year-old seems like a little young for the slaughterhouse. <laughs> I don't know that that's what the uh, well, age limit was remember, in place. Well, remember, in February, the Labor Department, this is from a, a right last year in Vox. In February, the Labor Department reported findings from 14 separate child labor investigations, including one that found Packers Sanitation Services, Inc. had been illegally employing over 100 teens between the ages of 13 yeah. and 17. So I don't know, maybe wow. is 13 okay? 11 is your line, but is 13 okay? Or does that also strike you as but that's not the, inappropriate? The, right, that is uh, that is illegal, and they went after them for that. That was a meat packer. It's not the, uh, the, the bills that you mentioned in Arkansas and somewhere else. And were... I Iowa is one of the places where they have these uh, bill. They've successfully implemented bills to make it easier for teenagers um, to work longer hours and work in, in some of these dangerous contexts. I, again, I think that's... Um, Probably uh, fine. A Labor Department announced that it found two 10-year-olds working in a McDonald's in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, this is from that same um, Vox report. In a from, McDonald's. From not last a, May. Yeah, ten, a slaughterhouse. Yes. 10-year-olds uh, working at McDonald's. What's so wrong with that? I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, never too early to get a little career development. A very little career skill. with little hands packing those little happy meals. Oh, well, what's going to happen to their hands? It's fine. All <laughs> fine right. by me. Ten-year-olds at your deep fryer, let us know what you think. More rising after this. Journalist Taylor Lorenz and the online commentator behind Libs of TikTok, Haya Reichek, sat down for a contentious conversation where Lorenz pressed Reichek on the transgender issue. Let's watch. If you eradicate transgenderism, which I believe you suggested in a post today. No, I never suggested that. Oh, okay. You reposted a post that was advocating for that. What would happen to the people that have already medically, socially, completely transitioned and are leading happy lives? What would happen to them? I mean, what's your plan for, for that? If transgenderism doesn't exist, which it seems like you're, that's what you believe, what happens to all the people living happy lives as trans people? Well, I First of all, the whole trans is it's based on a lie. You can't change your you can't change your gender. Okay, but so they could they could go live their 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 life. I mean, I can't tell someone what to do in their in their house. Sounds like you do want to tell people what to do in their house. 
I never said that. So you're totally okay with people being trans, just not as long as they're in public? No, I never said that. They could, it's, the whole thing is based off of a lie. And I think that um, the fa this lie cannot be mainstream in our, in our society. It's just, it's a lie. So when I saw this clip going viral, I was frankly surprised that Chaya didn't seem more prepared to respond to what wasn't an especially pressing mm -hmm. or novel set of questions about the kind of end game for her brand of politics. Yes, although, I mean, she explained there that she wasn't saying, because Taylor said, well, what are, what are you going, you're trying to get rid of transgenderism, what about all the transgender people? And she was saying, well, I'm not, what I take to be the libs of TikTok position is that adults are going to do whatever they want and I'm not going to stop them. And I, now I don't have to validate what they're doing. And libs of TikTok and many on the right have the position that men cannot become women and women cannot become men. So they're not going to humor them with the right pronouns and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, adults can and should make their own choices. That's what I got across. Right. Well, she says the contentious part is about what underage people should be but able to do. That's exactly what Taylor is pressing on. She says, well, you say that you shouldn't be able, that, that people should be free to do what they want in their own houses, that people can do what they want in their own private lives. But the valence of your tweeting and your, um, you're now a, a public official in, in the Oklahoma library board, mm -hmm. whatever it's called, seems to be contrary to that. That's a legislative body that has an effect on what people are able to do in their personal lives. And isn't that in stark contrast with these kind of stated libertarian well, not, ideals? Well, not in their personal. I mean, the you know, what the public library system, what the public school system do, what policies it has, that's not in the privacy of your own home or just, you know, living your life. That's what policies should be in place for for young, for young people and for for what like for what the government's policy is if for using public resources so those well, are contentious sure, and those will be litigated but that's like me but. saying that you have a right to own a gun but also we're going to make guns illegal so if you can go fashion a gun out of uh, sticks and twigs or uh, you are good at metallurgy and can make one in your backyard god bless but if you no, say we're, like we're supporting legislation to make it illegal for doctors to allow you to transition make it impossible for you to get your hands on the um, uh, the the hormones that would be required to do so, make it illegal to wear drag in public, make it you know illegal to uh, well, no, with, with have certain kinds of books and libraries. Then you aren't you are directly affecting how no, no, people no. can it, represent themselves in their own private spaces. I, I, I take issue with that example. I, it, no, you, you should be allowed to have guns, but you can't bring a gun into a courtroom and they're going to put up metal detectors to walk in because that's the like, no second amendment not, advocates aren't advocating for that kind of thing. Again, well, we're, we're talking about people in their homes well, and their lives. A public library and a public allowed. school is more like no, a courtroom than says, in your personal or your private life. She retweeted um, a TikTok that said Trans transgenderism must be eradicated. Not not allowed in a courtroom, not allowed in a library, but transgenderism should be eradicated. That is a, dare I say, genocidal statement that a category of people should no longer exist. And so when um, Taylor asks what should happen to all the people who have already transitioned and currently are trans, yeah. and uh, Chaya is unable to respond, I, I was frankly surprised by that. If you're going to have the position, have the position. Say, I think they should all be killed or rounded up or deported or, you well, know, have a position. But that is the 
irreducible conclusion I, of saying that a group of people that already exist in America should be eradicated, no? I I don't agree that that's what she's saying. And to be clear, well, what, I'm just trying to I'm saying? just trying to explain what I thought her position is. I'm not giving my own position, but Should they be forced the, to detransition? No. That's by one by way eliminating to see it. transgenderism what they mean is speaking out against it and and fighting in the court of public opinion the idea that it is possible to to actually change your sex and your gender, which is something social conservatives reject. You can dress up, you can change your body, you can get surgery, you can do whatever you want to make yourself feel more comfortable, but you don't change the fundamental underlying truth that you are a man or that you are a woman. Again, I'm saying that's what their position is, I don't, to be clear. I, I, I not that anybody being, should be forced to do that yeah. or, or, or forbidden not to at the adult level. They're, yes, they are trying to make it impermissible for people under a certain age as we no, continue to- No, at any age. They, these people have tried well, to just bar- she said she doesn't oh, want it to be- they, there have been very clear efforts to ban drag performances, period. There was that law. No, period. We, we talked about this on the show, Robbie, how there was this law that was promulgated, and I'm, I'm, I apologize, I forget what state, but it would broadly have banned any kind of cross-dressing, like Shakespearean plays put on in the yeah. traditional way. Women. We, don't you remember yeah. having those well, conversations? I, th I think that's dumb. I obviously oppose it. Yeah, so. okay. So that that is the issue, that I'm, I'm frankly surprised that Chaya was so seemingly caught off guard by what seemed to be very kind of like... Mm -hmm. Not, I don't mean superficial in a way to, and as an insult to Taylor, but like just entry level questions about what the implications of some of the things that she has said on social media really are. So Lorenz went on to press Raychek on claims that her rhetoric online has led to death threats and violence against others. Let's take a look. How do you think about the fact that, you know, so often your posts, things that you post about hospitals, libraries, schools, et cetera, um, you know, after you make these posts about them, they deal with threats, sometimes bomb threats, sometimes harassment. Um, it's, we don't know who's calling in the threats. Um, and I mean, look, bomb threats are bad. I've said that a thousand times. Um, people who call in bomb threats should be arrested and investigated. Uh, you can't call in bomb threats. Um, but I don't. I just don't know what it. What does it have to do with? Well, I guess you know. Um, a recent NBC investigation found at least 33 instances where you posted about a specific person or institution, and that person or institution was immediately bombarded with death threats and violent threats, um, including bomb threats, other violent threats. That's a pretty significant correlation. How do you, you know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, on? I don't know if you saw, but I got like tons of death threats. Um, the past this week after the entire media machine came after me. So are they responsible for those? All right, so that is continuing a conversation, obviously, we've had frequently on this show. Do let us know what you think about that and if you think that Riot Chatted's responses were, you know, good and, yeah. and responsive. I'll be very interested, yeah, to read the comments on this one. That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, we will be back. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, please check us out wherever you can find podcasts. And we will be back tomorrow. Take care. Bye.